1: Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 360. It's titled, Will the U.S. Default? The Debt Ceiling, Government Shutdowns, and the National Debt. The U.S. is in the midst of its periodic circus, theatrics, as it relates to the debt ceiling and a potential government shutdown. The Economist newspaper calls the debt ceiling issue the most bizarre of economic spectacles, a ritualistic threat of economic self-harm. They continue, in the name of fiscal responsibility, the world's biggest economy is flirting with an act of brazen irresponsibility, a sovereign default. Two things are going on currently right now. If you see the news, you see talk of government shutdowns, talk of debt ceiling, potential default. The debt ceiling issue is separate from a potential government shutdown related to the fiscal 2022 budget. The U.S.'s current fiscal year ends at midnight this Thursday, September 30th, 2021. Without additional funding... Many government functions will be shut down. Museums and national parks will close. Many federal workers won't get paid. About three out of five workers. The last government shutdown was in January 2019. It lasted 35 days. And seemed like it was never going to end until air traffic controllers, who were deemed essential workers, were working without pay, started calling in sick. That led to flight delays and ultimately an agreement to fund the government. That's what Congress is supposed to do, to fund the government. Now, oftentimes they don't have a new fiscal budget passed by October 1st, but they can pass what's known as a continuing resolution to continue to fund the government. They have not done so yet. The second issue is the debt ceiling. The debt ceiling is the legal cap that Congress sets on the amount of borrowing that the government can do, the amount of treasury notes and bonds issued by the U.S. Treasury. The first overarching debt ceiling was put in place in 1917. Prior to that, debt was authorized by Congress, but for specific purposes. The debt ceiling has been raised. 78 times since 1962, 49 times under Republican presidents, and 29 times under Democratic presidents. The debt ceiling was raised on a bipartisan basis three times under the Trump administration. But now, Republicans, at least yet, have been unwilling to raise the debt ceiling under a Biden administration. Because Congress authorizes spending, and those spending amounts exceed the amount of tax revenue raised. That leads to budget deficits, and that budget deficit every year leads to additional Treasury bond and note issuance to fund that gap. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said that if the debt ceiling is not raised, that the government will run out of cash. The U.S. Treasury to pay interest, to redeem maturing government bonds by October 18th. Again, this is separate from the fiscal 2022 budget. That has to do with authorization to spend. The debt ceiling has to do with actually having money to spend. Speaking of the mid-October date, Janet Yellen said a default would be a catastrophic event for the economy. At that point, we expect Treasury would be left with very limited resources that would be depleted quickly. It's uncertain whether we could continue to meet all the nation's commitments after that date, including payment of Social Security benefits, which we'll take a closer look at later in this episode. Now, where are we currently? The House of Representatives, where the Democrats have a majority approved a stopgap measure a continuing resolution to fund the government through December 3rd, 2021, with the idea that by then a actual budget could be passed and spending amounts, and the legislation suspended the debt limit through December 16th, 2022. Democrats in the Senate sought to pass similar legislation, but Senate Republicans blocked it. In the Senate, most legislation needs 60 votes, a supermajority, in order to move forward to a final vote. It's a procedural issue that keeps many bills from actually being read in a final vote. The Democrats have a slim majority in the Senate, but they need at least 10 Republicans to join in order to move forward with a given piece of legislation. There are some exceptions. It's known as reconciliation. This was a procedural issue passed back in 1974 that allows the Senate to pass a reconciliation bill, one that has to do with spending, another with revenue, another with raising the debt ceiling. So a limit of three per year, oftentimes, they are combined into one bill. The Senate has never passed a debt ceiling limit using a reconciliation bill. There's always been a bipartisan agreement to raise the debt ceiling. Republicans are unwilling to do that so far, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell said. This could not be simpler. If the Democrats want to tax, borrow, and spend historic sums of money without our input, they'll have to raise the debt limit without our help. We have some deadlines coming. The stock market has been volatile. It's down sharply. Interest rates are up. We've been here before. I remember distinctly in 2011 when there was a debt ceiling crisis. The U.S. government debt was downgraded by S&P. The stock market sold off sharply, down 6% from its high. Economic confidence plunged to levels not seen since 2008. And I left the client meeting. I was also our chief investment strategist managing assets. And I looked at my phone and I saw that the market crashed because of the debt ceiling and the downgrade. And I just remembered thinking, I am so tired of managing assets and dealing with the stress of now, what do we do? Especially when it's theatrics. Spending is passed on a bipartisan basis. The debt ceiling should be raised on a bipartisan basis. But not every senator or representative is involved in these budget issues. And so the debt ceiling becomes a way, a negotiating tactic. It typically goes to the very end. Hopefully, something will be passed. There's a YouTuber, a friend of mine, Devin Carroll. He has a channel on Social Security. We had a call this morning because we were trying to figure out if the debt ceiling isn't raised, how could that impact Social Security payments? Now, if the government shut down, if Social Security workers were not deemed essential, then maybe the checks didn't go out. But it goes beyond that. There's a Social Security trust fund that owns about $2.7 trillion in U.S. government obligations, assets of the trust fund. And we're going to look at the breakdown of the national debt here in a few minutes. So, the U.S. Treasury tracks what's going on with Social Security. Revenue comes in from payroll taxes. The Treasury also pays interest to the Social Security Trust Fund on the bonds that it owns. But there's a shortfall, and there has been since 2010. The Social Security Trust Fund has been redeeming some of those Treasury obligations that it owns in order to meet its obligations. Over its 86-year-old history, the Social Security Administration has collected $24.1 trillion in taxes and paid out $21.2 trillion. So there's roughly $2.7 and $2.9 trillion left for future spending. At some point, that trust fund will run out. I believe the date in the 2030s at some point. With this debt ceiling situation, Because there is less revenue coming in and tax revenue, the obligations are more than that, the trust fund needs to sell some of these government bonds. But they're not normal U.S. Treasury bonds. They're special obligations, which means they're not marketable. They can't be sold in the open market, which means the only way that Social Security Trust Fund can get capital, to make its payment, is that the U.S. Treasury, which is quickly running out of money, buys back some of the bonds and redeems the bonds. That's why, if the debt ceiling isn't passed, the U.S. Treasury can't do that, and the Social Security might miss some of its payments. The debt ceiling currently is at $28.5 trillion. And that's the amount that the U.S. government has outstanding in Treasury bonds and notes. That's the gross amount. $6.1 trillion is owned by federal government agencies. There's the $2.7 trillion owned by the Social Security Trust Fund. There's another $1 trillion owned by federal employees' retirement funds. That means there's $22.3 trillion of debt outstanding owned by the public. But even that isn't completely owned by the public because $5.6 trillion is owned by the Federal Reserve. So private investors own $16.7 trillion of the national debt. Commercial banks own just over a trillion. Private, state, and local pension funds own about a trillion. State and local governments own just over a trillion. Another $3.6 trillion owned by mutual funds. So if you own a bond fund, it more than likely owns treasury bonds. Foreign entities own $7 trillion of the national debt, including $1.3 trillion, Owned by Japan and 1.1 trillion by China. All those amounts are assets that individuals, businesses, governments, pension plans own. They collect interest. It's their asset, even though it's the debt. The national debt has clearly been growing. As of the end of the second quarter, 2021, the gross public debt, so the $28.5 trillion as a percent of the economy. Economic output GDP, which is at $22.7 trillion, that debt amount as a percent of GDP was 126%. It got as high as 136% in Q2, 2020. It's since come down. Following World War II in 1950, gross public debt was 91% of GDP, and it got as low in Q3, 1981 of 31%. Now, if we back out what the government owes itself, the different government agencies, including the Social Security Trust Fund, and we back out what the Federal Reserve, the central bank owes, then private investors, the total amount of debt as a percent of GDP that they own is is 74%. Is that a lot? Is that a little? And that's, that's one of the big unknowns when it comes to the national debt. How much debt is too much? If you look at Japan, Japan has one quadrillion yen of outstanding government bonds. That's a one followed by 15 zeros. It's a number so high I had to look up what do you call a number that's bigger than a trillion. Now we can convert that one quadrillion yen national debt of Japan into dollars and it's about $9.6 trillion. So less than the U.S. on an absolute basis, but relative to the size of the Japanese economy, their national debt is 250% of GDP, twice as high as the U.S. But if we look at interest rates on Japanese 10-year government bonds, they're at 0.08%, whereas the U.S. 10-year Treasury is yielding around 1.5%. And so there isn't a level where the debt is too high. We just don't know what that level is. Before we continue, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees' distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one program and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. With everything getting more expensive these days, it's wise to find ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. You can do that with NetSuite. And by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com david. That's netsuite.com david. netsuite.com david.
0: Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place.
1: There's a new book that just came out that I've been reading titled In Defense of Public Debt. It's by Barry Eichengreen and his co-authors. Iken Green is somebody that I respect highly. I've read a number of his books. He's an expert on gold, currency, and he's come out with this book on debt. He and his co-authors listed out some of the things that government borrowings are spent on. Foremost, it's national defense or offense, wars. The Civil War was funded by government bonds. So it was World War II. That's why. I- that's why we have the term war bonds. Government debt is used to fund infrastructure projects, highways, bridges, railways. There's a infrastructure bill working its way through Congress. I was thinking about this recently, wondering, where does there need to be a highway? And the one road that occurred to me is, is the road from Las Vegas to Phoenix, That would be a great place to turn that road into a highway. And then I recall that the only reason that Las Vegas and Phoenix are the size they are today is because of the Hoover Dam and other dam projects on the Colorado River. That is what allowed water to flow into the desert. And so when we talk about infrastructure projects, one of the questions is, is this a good investment? Or is it an investment at all, this infrastructure? There's a the thought that if it was such a good investment, then the private sector would be funding it and earning a return. But sometimes the projects are so big that the government gets involved, and there can be unintended consequences of that. Infrastructure is a second area where governments borrow money to fund projects. The third area is social goods, medical care, medicine, a social safety net. Some of these need the government involved because it's a failed market, or it's just a market that isn't adequately served by the private market. Take Medicare, for example, in the U.S. Most retirees, older Americans, would not be able to pay a market price for health insurance. They get a government-sponsored plan that has some private aspects to it, but that's a social safety net. That's what debt is spent on, but the issuance of debt has actually led to the development of financial markets. Government bonds, they're liquid. They're considered safe. The interest rate on government bonds is used as a benchmark to price riskier assets, riskier loans. That's why the government bond yield is often considered a risk-free rate. An example of how government debt has facilitated innovation in the financial space is the National Banking Act of 1863 and 1864 in the United States. These acts established a system of of national banks, and those national banks could issue dollars. What were those dollars backed by? What did these banks have to hold as collateral? They held government bonds. Almost $6 billion worth of union bonds were issued to help fund the Civil War. They actually issued more bonds than the Civil War cost, which cost about $3 billion. But of those union bonds, $400 million was bought by foreign investors. Those investors were willing to buy those government bonds because the interest would be paid in gold or in dollars that were backed by gold, and that made them attractive. It was all the bonds held by the national banks that allowed for the issuance of the U.S. dollar that was backed by government bonds. That was the currency up until the Federal Reserve was established in 1913. Now, there have always been government defaults on their debt. If we go back to the 19th century, and I pulled this from Green's book, and they had a chart there that showed the number of countries in default at any given time. In 1820, there were 32 countries in default. There were 25 in default in 1890. Ongoing defaults and defaults occur due to political instability, a lack of discipline in a fiscal system. It could be a civil war, civil conflict. Colombia, Mexico, Spain, and Venezuela all defaulted five times between 1800 and 1913. So defaults occur. Hopefully we won't see a default in the U.S. in the coming weeks. I don't think we will, but you never know. The other thing that can help prevent default is when the central bank gets involved and pegs interest rates. In the U.S., from April 1942... Until 1951, there was a peg, a cap on interest rates for government bonds, two and a half percent on bonds and three-eighths of a percent on treasury bills. And whenever there wasn't sufficient demand to keep interest rates at that level, then the Federal Reserve would buy bonds. When central banks do that, there's a problem. When do you stop doing that? If you stop, do interest rates spike? And then all those citizens that bought war bonds, tried to be good patriots, could see losses in those bonds because interest rates went up. But they were capped. And eventually there was agreement to get rid of that cap in the early 1950s. One of the challenges with that cap is the Federal Reserve lost some of its control over the price level, over inflation. Because when investors didn't want to hold the bonds, they thought they could earn more money elsewhere, they would sell the bonds and they would get cash. And the Federal Reserve would have to buy it. And oftentimes that cash was used to buy things and it would push up prices. Or when there was a big demand, that would actually soak up cash in the system. And so you saw some pretty wild fluctuations in consumer prices. Consumer prices increased by 14% in 1947. Then in 1949, during recession, they fell 1%. Then in 1951, they increased 8%. In other words, capping interest rates led to volatile inflation statistics. That's potentially a risk of the central bank purchasing bonds today because it increases the money supply, and we've seen that. M2, which represents cash, money market accounts, cash held at banks... That M2 aggregate was $8.5 trillion in 2010, and it's $20.6 trillion today. We haven't seen the huge inflation swings from August 2015 to August 2021. Inflation has increased at 2% per year. But we've clearly seen asset price inflation. So the cost of living hasn't dramatically increased, except for the past year when it's gone over 5%. But certainly that jump in the money supply has led to higher prices for real estate for stocks, for gold. There is an increase in the money supply. And I, I've tried to go through examples to, to simplify this as much as possible. But if the government gives me a dollar and then I turn around and buy a government bond with that dollar because the government wanted to fund its deficit, but then the Federal Reserve, the central bank, buys the bond from me and creates the money to give me the dollar, what do I have at the end? Well, I'm a dollar richer. There's more money. And that's what we've seen. There's definitely some short-term risk of U.S. government default due to the debt ceiling, but it will probably be raised. But the risk longer term is something we've talked about in a number of episodes, the loss of trust. If there's a lack of discipline with the government, and they just spend too much money, the deficit gets too big, and people don't want to hold the dollar, just like they didn't want to hold the currency in Turkey and Lebanon. That can lead to the currency falling in value relative to other assets and relative to other currencies. That causes import prices to increase, and it can lead to higher inflation. And perhaps there's not a technical default if the U.S. government could continue to redeem its bonds and its notes, and the central bank could keep purchasing them. But if People don't want to hold the currency. It becomes a hot potato. They would rather own real things, own assets like land. That can cause the currency to fall. Ricardo Reese of the London School of Economics writes, people are only willing to lend to the government expecting a real return. And almost all government spending programs require providing or paying for real services or goods. Fiscal burdens are real. And it is an illusion to think that printing money makes them magically disappear. If central banks could magically create something out of nothing without bounds, then the whole of society could use monetary problems to solve any scarcity problem. Last week, we talked about scarcity, a scarcity of goods and workers. Those problems are not solved by creating more money. They're solved by producing more, shipping more. People willing to work and be more productive. Ultimately, people willing to use a currency and accept a currency. And if that trust wanes, then any country is in very, very deep trouble. And we've seen that. We've seen that repeatedly over the history. We just don't know what level that is. The bond market's not overly concerned right now, either in Japan, which is highly, highly indebted, or the U.S., The wealth of a nation isn't its currency. It isn't its government bonds. It's the ingenuity, the productivity of its workforce and its capital base, its companies. That's what's real, not the currency of the government bonds. Just why we've seen defaults and inflation over the millennia. We'll see what happens this time. Hopefully, trust will be maintained and Congress will do the right thing. That's episode 360. I'd like to help you become a better investor. Certainly the free podcast helps with that. But have you subscribed to my email newsletter? It's where I share an essay on money investing in the economy each week to that list of thousands of email subscribers. I put a great deal of thought and time into that newsletter, and I would love you to be able to read it and learn from it. You can sign up for the Insider's Guide newsletter at moneyfortherestofus.com. Another way I would love to help you become a better investor is by you becoming a member of Money for the Rest of Us Plus. This is the premier investment education platform that's been operating for almost seven years now. Plus membership gives members the tools and resources they need to manage their investment portfolios. Not only can you tap into my more than two decades of investment experience, look at my portfolio trades, but my research is backed by top-tier institutional research partners such as Ned Davis Research, Capital Economics, MSCI, Refinitiv Data Stream. I curate the most important content and lessons to help you make better portfolio decisions you also access a community of over 1,000 members to get their insights. Money for the Rest of Us Plus is a bargain compared to a college credit or subscribing to institutional research services that cost tens of thousands of dollars per year or even hiring a financial advisor. You can learn more at MoneyForTheRestOfUs.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I'm not considered your specific risk situation. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing in the economy. Have a great week.